are in the last Sunday of a four-week series on finances. Now, here's what we know. As Americans, we are very uh, proud people. We have lots of things to be proud of. We're good at a lot of things. As Americans, we're bold, strong, we're innovative, we're compassionate people. We have a really good ethic. We're optimistic, we're hopeful, we're caring. We lead the world in many, if not most, scientific and artistic fields. It's all incredible stuff. There is one thing, though, that we're also known the world over for. It's this, it's for being the richest culture that ever existed and the worst culture in terms of our ability to manage the blessings of our finances that ever existed. There are a slew of surveys and data that have recently come out just continuing to talk about this, revealing that that we don't save enough, we we spend money we don't have, we have our financial priorities backwards. I want to give you some examples that some of you are feeling in, in real life. Over the last 42 years, the average U.S. house has increased in size by 1,000 square feet, from an average size in 1973 of around 1,600 feet to a record 2,700 square feet last year. Yet, a survey released in January by Bankrate found that nearly 60% of Americans, that means the person, just about the person to your left and to your right, 60% of Americans wouldn't have enough money to pay for a $500 expense if it came up unexpectedly. In fact, as a country, we have now just recently topped a trillion dollars in credit card debt. You would think that would bother us. But here's what the the recent statistic came out about this. Americans are now more concerned about affording their next vacation, 36%, than having adequate retirement savings, 32%, which might explain why more than half of Americans will be broke when they retire. More than a half of working-age Americans have no money saved for retirement. Last year, do you know how much we gambled and lost Americans last year? A hundred... Uh, let me give you the exact number, $94 billion. We lost gambling last year. And around 800,000 of us declared personal bankruptcy. And so it would be no wonder that if you are sitting in the bush in Senegal, you would look and go, really? Like, really? I was talking with a relative of mine over Thanksgiving, the topic turned to finances, and they were sharing how they know little to nothing about their personal money management or really their own financial situation. They exist. Money comes in, money goes out. And as I reflected on it, I couldn't help but understand why that's likely true, because the reality is, and think about this, where are you going to learn to manage basic money management techniques? I mean, they don't teach it in school. I mean, as far as I know, they don't really teach it in college. I mean, you don't want to learn from watching television or from your friends. There are plenty of people who would like to get your money from you to teach you how to manage it. How about your kids? How are they learning to manage the gifts that God has given them? Well, mostly from you. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. So there's very little talk in our culture about how to do this correctly, yet what's fascinating, and even less in the church, 
Yet, what's fascinating is, and we, we've seen this over the, the last few weeks, the Bible in general, and Jesus in particular, talked more about money, taught more about money than perhaps any other topic other than the kingdom of God. Half of Jesus' parables about, uh, about money. And here's why, because nothing will enslave you, nothing will steal your freedom, nothing will compete for your heart and affections more than money. And so with that in mind, as I've been researching this topic, and, and I knew I only had four weeks to talk about it, to try to tuck this in before Christmas, and it's just so much, like how do you boil it down? And so what I stumbled upon uh, was a fascinating collection of what both secular um, people that really have you know, no, no interest in what the, the scripture would, would say, and Christian writers, what they both have labeled the top 10 financial commandments. You can Google this when you go home. And what was really interesting to me is how these same topics came up. The, the commandments were nearly identical between the sacred or the secular. From CNN, TheStreet.com, Bankrate, Gene Chatsky, to Bill Hybels, John Ortberg, and the Money Wise Pastor. These commandments that, that, that people come up with are shockingly similar. And so what I've done is I've combined lots of my work over the last few weeks with principles that I believe to be biblical and have been helpful to me personally to bring you this morning as we conclude my own list of these commandments. Here's what I truly believe, and my kids will be in here today, and I want them to hear them, and I want your kids to hear them. If you will follow these principles, you will taste freedom and joy and life. And if you don't, you, you walk in ignorance to them, a little bit at your own peril. So, with that in mind, we got to get through 10 of them. Let's jump in. Here's the first one. Number one, thou shalt... Oh, by the way, I broke these up like the real Ten Commandments. Five thou shalt and five thou shalt not. So we're going to start with thou shalt. Number one, thou shalt trust in God, not money. If this sounds familiar, because it's really the actual first commandment, which is that thou shalt have no other gods than me. Now, what I've been trying to preach up here over these last few weeks is this underlying truth, which kind of holds up this whole series. It's a truth I want you to understand, and I'm trying to come to grips with myself in my own personal financial life. The reason Jesus says more about money than any other thing is this. Understand the gospel. Jesus came to ransom you, to redeem you, to reconnect you heart to heart with God. Jesus came to restore a relationship that was rightfully ours, that we were to walk in all the days of our lives with our God, but got destroyed by sin. And God, he's a jealous God. He wants to be number one in our lives, not because he's narcissistic or needy. It's because he, he knows how we were made. He knows how we're fashioned, how we work best, and it is in relationship with him. But nothing competes with God for our hearts and our trust and our love more than money. Jesus said on several occasions, you cannot love both God and money. Understand, church, this is who God is so often in competition with in your life. It's really clear. And in order to battle for our hearts, Jesus pr proclaims a, a pretty profound truth. Here's what he said. We started the series with this. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
We tend to think it's the other way, right? We tend to think what he was actually saying is, well, wherever you're really believing in, that's what you should give to. That's not what Jesus was saying. Jesus was saying there is something in the way you work, probably in our brokenness, in our sinful nature, but there's something in the way you work that where you invest, where you put your treasure, that's where your heart goes to. And so this is a discipleship principle for training our hearts to rely on trust and love God, to invest in the things of God, his work. And as we do that, our hearts will follow it. Your heart and your mind and your hopes and your dreams, they will begin to move off of the beach house. And I need this. I think about beach houses way too much. My heart, my mind, my dreams, my hopes will begin to go where I've invested Invest significantly in the kingdom of God and not just on the kingdom of earth. Thou shalt not, excuse me, thou shalt trust in God, not money. Number two, thou shalt remember who the owner is. Many of you know the story of King David. He's Israel's great king. He wrote about half of the Psalms. Here's what he wrote in Psalm 24. He said, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it is the Lord's. The world and all who live in it is the Lord's. Essentially, everything's God's. Now, most of us get this. We'd say we believe it, but this is really hard to live out in the day to day. Because once we get a little stuff, we start to store it up, we start to believe it's ours and we start to trust in it. But David got it. He had lived long enough. He had experienced enough to know, despite the fact that that he often fell short in his personal life, he understood a foundational truth of stuff, and he lived it out. I want to show you. There's a story in in the Old Testament book of 1 Chronicles, which is essentially a history book, and it's about David coming to the realization that God, who had now led Israel into the promised land, was still living in what was essentially a tent, uh, the tabernacle, And so David's looking out his window likely, and he's seeing the the city building up. He's seeing that he's gotten all this stuff, but yet the God who gave it all to them still does not have what what he would say would be a, a home, a temple befitting this incredible king. And so David, understanding from God that he's not going to be the one to build this temple, that his son Solomon would be the one that builds the temple, decides what I'll do then, my contribution to this will be to get all of the resources together that are possible for my son Solomon to build a home fitting for God. Now, part of that included David taking money and gold and silver from the national treasury of Israel, but he also, the scriptures say in 1 Chronicles 29, that he went into his personal treasure and took out all of his own gold and silver, estimated by some scholars at up to $14 billion to construct Solomon's temple, one of the great wonders of the archaeological world. Why? because he understood whose money it was. Here's what he said to the people as he asked them to contribute uh, sacrificially. David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly, saying, Praise be to you, Lord, the God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor, for everything in heaven and earth is yours. This is David kind of reciting his psalm again. He's going, I'm the king. I know that I have a lot. But but what I've come to discover is that everything is actually yours. All of it. 
David goes on. He says, yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You're exalted as head over all. Listen now. Wealth and honor come from you. You're the ruler of all things. And so David is saying, God, not, not only does it all belong to you, it all came from you. What I have, what, what I might be tempted to think I worked for that came from my strength, it came from you. And since he repeats it, he says, in your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. David says to all of Israel, any of you who have anything, you need to know, you might start to take pride that it came from you, but you need to understand that God gave you the strength to build this up. And so he concludes, now our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. This matters a lot. If we can get this principle down, that what we have is not our own, it is really God, it changes a lot of stuff. When we understand who owns it, it impacts how we treat it. When we understand who owns it, it impacts how we treat it. I heard this story of this week of a traveler that was traveling between flights, and they were at an airport, and they went to a lounge. Um, you know, if you've ever had to do that, right, you're in between, your, you know, you're waiting for connection. And they bought a small package of cookies, probably at the price of 10 bucks, right? And so she sat down and she began reading her newspaper. Gradually, she became aware of a rustling noise from behind her paper, and she was flabbergasted to see that there was a neatly dressed man helping himself to her cookies. Not wanting to make a scene, she leaned over and kind of gave him a look and took a cookie herself and stared at him, gave him a bit of a dirty look. A minute or two passed, and then came more rustling. He was helping himself to another one of her cookies. So she looks at him again. She can't believe it. She grabs another one of the cookies. And this went on between the two of them staring at each other until they were down to the last cookie, which the man broke in two. He pushed half across to her, ate the other half, and left. And she's fuming about this. So when her flight's announced, she opens her handbag to give her ticket, and to her shock and embarrassment, there she found her pack of unopened cookies. Not only has she not been eating her cookies, she had been eating his cookies. Now listen, it's funny, right? But how I deal with cookies depends a lot on whose cookies I think they are. Right? Number three, thou shalt have a plan with God honoring priorities and percentages since this stuff is not really our stuff. We are stewards. We are handling somebody else's things. To handle God's money properly, my daughter almost went on a date the other day, and I'm like, yeah, I'd like to see this boy because she's not here for a service. So um, I was going to give this, this high school boy a talk about you, this, you, you're taking my daughter out, right? Um, I want you to understand there's expectations now. You are stewarding a gift that's mine. I, that's just between us. I know she's not up early enough to watch this one on Facebook either, so I'm probably all right. Now, back to this. Um, we're going to get to manage what, what we've been given by God for a little bit. I told you money is a test to see what we can be trusted with in the next kingdom. And in a short time, we're going to hand all of it, everything we have, we're going to hand it over to somebody else and God's going to see what they're going to do with it. And so we're commanded to be responsible. 
with God's money. So we need to have a plan with what we're going to do with it and not just live paycheck to paycheck and wonder what happened to the money and hope the money will last. And so I've been trying to give you resources for this, guys, and I went on and I made sure, sure they're up there and that they work. If you go to the Engage tab on our website, you will see two Dave Ramsey tools there. One is a PDF budget, one is an interactive budget where you can come up with a plan. All the percentages are laid out there of how you should organize your finances, and it will get you to a zero-based budget, and it will help you manage and steward the king's resources. But essentially, we've been talking about this over the last three weeks, that plan is going to help you make one of three decisions. The first decision you've got to make is how much you're going to spend. Now, if you remember, you've been around here for the last few weeks. We're really good at this bucket. Anybody remember what we spend on average of our income? About 130% of what comes in. We'll talk about that in a thou shalt or not in a few minutes. Listen, if you go on the Ramsey material or you talk to any financial advisor, what they're going to tell you is you really need to be thinking about spending significantly, this should not be shocking, but nobody ever told you this, you should be thinking about spending significantly less money than you bring in. Like most people would tell you, and this is not in the Bible, this is not biblical, but this is, this is uh, financial planning, around 80% of what you're bringing in. Enjoy it. It's a gift from God. No guilt. We'll talk about that in a minute. You got two other buckets. In general, you've got this. We'll talk about the give bucket in a second. You've got a save bucket. The Bible talks lots about saving and our responsibility to save. Anybody remember what we're saving in general? Four to five percent. You should be saving at least 10 percent. I got financial advisors in the audience. I know right now I'll be going, you should probably be saving more than that, right? But you should be saving at least 10%. I can give you loads of scriptures on this. And last but not least, we had a discussion here about giving, the, the principle, the biblical principle of tithing, right? And in general, what we've discussed is we are no longer under the law of the tithe, under the command of the tithe, but nevertheless, it remains a biblical truth that we should at some level, at a minimum, be putting about 10%, put that the other way, I wouldn't want anybody to start giving 0.01%, 10% of what we're bringing in to the work of God through the local church. Malachi, we talked about this, where God, this is the only place in Scripture now, where God says regarding this concept of a tithe, bringing 10%, Although, as I told you, in Israel, it was actually up to 23%. But bringing at least 10% into the, into the work of God, here's what God said. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there might be food in my house. And then he says, the only place in Scripture, test me in this. He's talking to you. Test me in this. Try this. And he says, see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. Now, there are going to be some prosperity preachers out there that are going to tell you this means that if you give 10%, God is going to give you back 20. I don't believe that to be true. This was a very specific promise to, to Israel under the old covenant. But here's what I do believe to be true. 
If you give money, if you, if you run your finances in these biblically called for ways, it's a heart principle. If you follow my ways, you will be blessed. You will find what you're looking for. You will live in line with the way you were created. If you invest your treasure with me, I will get connected to your heart and you'll find peace and hope and love and joy. It's all promised to you. And he says, test me, try it out. And then Malachi had a stern warning for the people. He said, you're robbing God. And if you remember, they said, well, how are we robbing God? Malachi responded. He said, you're not giving to him your first fruits. You're just giving to him what's left over. You're two to three percent. You know, the, the, the lamb with three eyes, the, the colt with two legs. You wouldn't give that to anybody else, but you bring it to God and go, well, here, you know, here's a 20. Some more fascinating numbers. You know, if I go out to the, you know, if I go out to the square on Morristown and I said, "Tell me about Christians," what's the first negative thing they would say about us? They'd say, "We're all." As believers in the 21st century, we're still robbing God. Today, Christians give Christians give less per capita to the work of God in the local church than they did during the Great Depression with only about 3 to 5% of people tithing. And here's what's scary for an affluent congregation like ours. Statistics suggest that if you make less than $20,000, you are eight times more likely to give than someone who makes more than $75,000. It's shown over and over, the more we make, the less we give. I don't know if you felt this, I had a job one time where most of my income came in in big checks. When I was making $24,000 a year, it was not that hard. I told you my first envelope, right? My envelopes, my cash envelopes were in alphabetical order, but my first one was tied. It was the only one out of alphabetical order, and I put my 10% of cash in there, and I would give it to the church. When I was making $24,000 a year, that was very easy. Then I got a job where you would make an investment. Some of these investments you'd make, I made in the 90s, and that investment would come back a decade later. And that, that investment was essentially my salary, but it was spread out. It wasn't, it wasn't all coming every year. I, I didn't make all that much, but it was hold on to the end and it comes. Guess how hard it was to write the 10% when it came in that big check? Really hard. There's an old story. Somebody goes up to, to heaven and they said, well, you know, what's the first question you ask God when you get there? And they're going to say, well, I'm going to ask him, how could he, he could allow such cruelty in the world? How could he allow so many people to, to be without food and water and clothes? To which the story goes that God will answer, well, I didn't. I gave all of my people all the resources that would be necessary to take care of all of that. They just decided to spend it on themselves. Relevant Magazine did a, a, some research on the global impact if the church of Jesus Christ began to tithe. Here's what they discovered. There would be an additional $165 billion for churches to use and distribute. The global impact would be phenomenal. Listen, this is why this is important. This is why God says, you're robbing me. $25 billion would relieve global hunger, starvation, and deaths from preventable disease in five years. $12 billion could be used to eliminate illiteracy in five years. $15 billion could solve the world's water and sanitation issues. 
specifically at places in the world where one billion people live on less than a dollar a day, and one billion dollars could fully fund all overseas mission works, and there would still be 100 to 110 billion dollars left over for additional ministry expansion. We're robbing God. We have to do better. I have to do better. I have to lead by doing better. In our ministry here at Mendham, our budget would likely triple. Can you imagine what would happen in our attempt to reach the 92,962 people that lived within one town of this church if our budget tripled? This is why I, you know, I, I want to encourage you, and some of you have done this already. Technology has given us a great tool right now. We're, we're with this online giving mechanism. You can sign up right now and make sure that you are prioritizing God, that it comes first. You're not in church. It doesn't matter. You, you, you st- just like you prioritize your 401k, you begin to prioritize your giving. And so thank you for those of you that have done it. I want to encourage you that those, those of you that haven't, start to think about that. It's an incredible tool to help you plan and prioritize and, and to help you with your percentages. I know that you can't move to this immediately. Maybe some of you, I know this is difficult, but I'd encourage you to make it a goal. Number four, Thou shalt be content with and responsibly enjoy what God has provided. I remember when I was about 10, maybe 15 years ago, remember Evander Holyfield was like the big time Christian fighter? And he had all the Christian like, you know, Bible verses on his stuff. I'm old enough to remember when Mike Tyson actually bit his ear off. I was watching that fight. Right? And Evander Holyfield, you know, and, and as a young Christian myself, I was like, oh, this is great. This guy's such a light for Christ. Well, you know, one day they showed his house, and it was uh, in Atlanta. And it was literally covered the entire top of a mountain. And I had this judgmental thing fly off in my head that says, oh, what kind of Christian could live in a house like that? And you know what the Lord said to me? Oh, really, John? What kind of Christian could live in the house you're living in right now? Because you're living, you're living with, in the most expensive house that you were able to afford. And so... This is not, biblical financial management is not about guilt. I want you to understand me, church. It is okay to have a nice house, a nice car, to enjoy a nice dinner out. It's not about how little you can have. In fact, one of the great heresies of all time are people that go in that direction and start saying, everything on earth is evil. I want nothing to do with anything. That is not true. It is far from God. It is okay to enjoy life, and is it okay? It is okay to enjoy things. Paul had a warning about this, but also a teaching when he told Timothy, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or put their hope in wealth, which is uncertain, but to put their hope in God. That was command one, if you remember. But then he said to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything. Why? For our enjoyment. For your enjoyment. Enjoy what you've been given. Don't feel guilty. Don't let Pastor John make you feel bad. That's not my goal. Yet, we're a people who struggle with contentment. We struggle simply enjoying what God has blessed us with without this constant insatiable desire for more. John Ortberg, when he was writing on this topic, pointed out Proverbs 30, 15. It says, The leech has two daughters. Give, give, they cry. 
The chronic desire for more, it just sucks joy and gratitude out of us. It's so destructive. The Bible compares it to a leech. And you and I live in a culture, especially, by the way, this time of year, that is built on this. More, more, more. We talk about our lifestyles. What's your lifestyle? What's your rate of consumption? How many clothes? How much money? What, what size is your house? The smartest people in our world are sitting around rooms in New York and L.A. right now trying to figure out how to get you to want more, to spend more, to steal your heart. Most people never ask what would be enough. So let me ask you, what would be enough? Because we live in Leechville. So as we seek to live the way Jesus lived, uh, aware of God's presence in our lives, as we surrender to his will, what if we did, what if we as Christians, this is crazy, lived different than the culture? What if today we declared, today I have enough? I have enough. What if Thanksgiving weekend became, I've had enough weekend? What if today you were to declare, as of today, I now have enough. I'm going to be content with what I have. It's enough. Command five. Thou shalt teach your children about money. Parents, understand, nobody else will. You teach them about sports and Jesus. Often we teach more about sports. Uh, we talk with them about grades and sex and college but nothing might save them more from ruining their one and only life than if we would teach them about money. I'm going to go a step further. You might never ever mention a word to them about money, but you're teaching them. You might never mention to them a word about money. Oh, but you're teaching them. Culturally, some might argue, especially in these areas of affluence where we find ourselves, and parents, I know this. I know I've seen me do this to my own children. I see it in my kids. We can corrupt them with how much money we have. What are you teaching your kids about money? Because you're teaching them. The scripture would say, teach them these principles. Number six, this is a huge one. And to, to uh, introduce it, I want to show you maybe my all-time favorite commercial. Check this out. I'm... I'm in debt up to my eyeballs. See, this, this command number six is this. Thou shalt not fall into debt. Now we're switching to the shall nots. And this is the biggest one. This is not a money management principle. This is a spiritual gospel principle. Listen to me. Jesus came and paid a very steep price to ransom your soul away from slavery to sin so that sin would no longer be your master, but that God himself would be your master. You're free. He paid a huge price for you to live and enjoy the freedom available to you. Galatians puts it this way. It was for freedom that Christ sent us free so that we'd be free. And therefore, keep standing firm and don't, do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. 
And there is perhaps no other place where we willingly surrender our freedom than when we get in debt. Now, I'm not talking about responsible debt here, uh, debt related to a mortgage on on a house that you're going to live in for 30 years. It's an appreciating asset. That makes sense. Uh, I'm not talking about uh, loans whose lifespan spans the use of the asset. There are good and biblical, okay usages of debt. What I'm talking about here more are, and you know it, the kind of unsecured consumer debt that's most often taken via that little rectangular piece of plastic in, in your wallet. I, I love what Chase did with their credit card. Does anybody know what Chase calls their credit card? The Freedom Card. Could anything be more laughable? At least MasterCard got it right. Debt will be your master. Here's what Proverbs says. The poor are always ruled by the rich, so don't borrow and put yourself under their power. You have, anybody have any idea what the average credit card debt is in America? $16,883. If you have credit card debt, that's the average amount of credit card debt you're carrying. Now, I did a little math on this. At an annual interest rate of only 15%, most cards are higher. If you make the minimum payments on this debt, you will pay way more in interest than the money you borrowed, and it will take you nearly 30 years to pay it off. That Christmas bender from last year, you remember? You'll be paying it off when you're 80. One writer put it this way, debt can undermine the power of love. Debt can destroy the power of hope. It can dash the power of a dream. It can divide community, get on the wrong side of interest, and it can destroy your life. Debt has an uncanny way of unmasking our character flaws. Reuben Clark said, once you're in debt, interest will be your companion every minute of the day, and it's working against you. You see, it has no love, it has no sympathy. It is as hard and soulless as a granite cliff, and you cannot dismiss it. Whenever you get in its way or you cross its course or fail to meet its demands, it crushes you. The scripture teaches flee sexual immorality. As your pastor, I would add this to it. Flee consumer debt. Run like heck. Every time you go up to the the, the, the register, and they ask you, would you like to apply for a credit card and save 5%? Your answer should be, heck no. That is a sucker's game. Don't fall for it. Commandment 7, thou shall not confuse wants and needs. I used to say this to my kids so much, even I got tired of saying it. But it's a lesson that we all need to be reminded of. I remember specifically one time, my, 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 my kids were in baseball, this is ridiculous where we live. I remember my daughter signed up for cheerleading, and I had to go to the cheerleading outfit room, and it was ma- the mandated stuff was $350, and this was like 12 years ago. My, my son joined Little League, and they said, well, he's got to go get a bat. Has anybody gone out and priced a Little League bat? And I remember he told me, I need a bat. And I said, oh, tut, tut, you don't need a bat. There, there will be other bats there, that you could, you could swing. You need a house. You need food. You need clothes. You want a bat. Right? 
And if we could start to understand, and, I, and so I would just train them all the time. What do you see? And they got to say, yeah, yeah, I know I don't need it. I want it, right? Like, I, you know, I need a cell phone. No, you don't need it. You want it. Keep in mind, I, and I, I've already said, it's, enjo- it's okay to enjoy balance and nice things, but we have to understand what's been promised to us. God's promise is, is to meet our needs, our provisions, not our wants. Now, anybody like to go to the Short Hills Mall this time of year? I only go at this time of year to the Short Hills Mall um, because you know why? It's the place to go where you, like my dad, he's 75 years old. He has everything. What do you get your 75-year-old dad? And so if I walk around the Short Hills Mall, do you know there's a store at the Short Hills Mall? Two. There's one entirely dedicated to pens, right? And I don't think there's a pen in there under a couple hundred dollars. And there's another whole store. And can you imagine the rent they're paying at the Short Hills Mall dedicated to the art, the art of shaving, right? My dad does not, somebody's laughing. (laughs) My dad does not need a $150 razor. I don't even, the truth is, I don't even think he wants it. But we get so caught up in this. Don't get suckers. Smart people are trying to steal your heart. Number eight, thou shalt still not covet. See, that was one of the original ten you ever notice that most of the thou shalt nots in the original commandments were short? Listen, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not lie. Listen to what happens when God gets to thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not covet your, na- uh, thou shalt not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. We have a coveting problem. See, I was really happy with my house until you invited me over. I was really happy with my car until I saw yours. I really liked my TV until I saw the box on my neighbor's front lawn. This is, I love Bill Hybels has such wisdom in this, and this has helped me over the years when he said this. He goes, here's how you solve this. He said, here's what you can do today to solve the coveting problem in your life. Declare your neighbor the winner. Right here, right now, just say, you know what? You win. Take your victory lap. You win the car game. You win the house game. You win the landscape game. You win the Christmas light game. You win the big snowblower game. You win. You can save yourself tens of thousands of dollars by today declaring your neighbor the victor. And you don't even have to enter the competition. Just say, look, I'm going to go back to my plan I'm going to honor God. I'm going to set some money aside for savings. I'm going to avoid debt. I'm going to stay on my game plan. I'm going to think about the long haul. You do whatever you want. I'm not in the game. Have you ever thought about what the Joneses get for all their competition? A heart full of anxiety and a wheelbarrow full of debt. It's a shallow victory and it's short-lived. Forget about the Joneses. Stay on your game. Stay on your plan regardless of what your brother-in-law is doing. Number nine, thou shalt not judge with money. We talked about it last week in the story of the rich fool that Jesus talked about. This guy's building, he's building bigger barns to store his stuff in. And Jesus said, be on your guard against greed. Life doesn't consist in the abundance of possessions. I have to tell you this one more time because it's hard. Your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. But man, we sure think it does. 
We have to start judging our success and others' success in regards to how, stop judging in regards to how much we make or how much we have. This is important, you understand. These are gospel principles. If you want to see your value, if you want to see what you're worth, don't look at your 401k. Look at the cross of Jesus Christ where the Son of God bled and died for you. That is where your net worth is found. Stop judging yourself by how much you make or how much you have. My friend John Allen's dad just passed away recently. I told you he was a very successful man, and he had three sons that were all millionaires in their 30s. And I looked at him the week before he died, and I said, you must be very proud of all the success your friends have had. I had the privilege of leading the man to Christ, and he knew that I'd, I'd left the finance world and come and done this, and he said, no, 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 no. You're successful. And it wasn't that he was trying to pump me up. It was that in his dying days... In his last moments, he understood what really mattered. In the end, all you're going to have is this, the great command. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your strength, with all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. And finally, command number 10. Thou shalt not forget the final audit. Jesus, in the same dialogue where he, he, he diagnosed the rich uh, man building bigger barns as a fool, he would go on to tell the crowd this. He said, now listen, church. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Jesus, in his story of the talent, said there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management. Every one of us in this room is going to be called to give an account for what we have done with our one and only life and with how we stewarded the blessings of God. I'm not trying to scare you because here's the deal. Our salvation, our acceptance by God isn't going to be based on our performance. It's based on Jesus' performance and what he's done for us. Thank God it's not dependent on my performance. But what we'll be entrusted with in the kingdom that's to come how trustworthy we've been with God's stuff here in this kingdom will impact how much we'll be trusted with in the next. Jesus concluded his story on the talents with this. He said, to those of us, to those who use well what they're given, even more will be given, and they will have an abundance. You're going to go Christmas shopping soon. Maybe I should have sent this to you before Black Friday. But I'm going to end where we began. Church, friends, the reason the scripture talks so much about this is it will wreck your life and steal your heart. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there also your heart will be. As the band comes up, I want that the elders pushed me to make a challenge to you guys, and so and, and I'm, I'm in with it, um, and I'm going to challenge myself with it. When you get a card, you came in, and it talked about a plan, a priority, and a percentage. 
This is how you find freedom in your life. This is how you follow the precepts of God. This is how you obey all of the many commands about finances. Now, there's two things that you're going to see on that card. Number one is there's no name on it. I don't want to know your name. Number two is there's no percentage amount on it. That's between you and God. But, but I think we've all walked along here and felt some conviction. I know I have. And so what I would like to ask you to do is before God, maybe you need to check one of those boxes. Maybe, maybe you need to move from just being somebody that kind of gives a dollar amount and goes, well, it's a lot. Maybe you need to move towards being a percentage giver. Maybe you're a person that, that if, you're, if you're very honest, you've given God what's left over. Maybe you need to become a priority giver. Maybe you're a person, and you've been, you've been carrying God's stuff around for years, and you've had no plan at all. Maybe you need to make a promise to God that you're going to get on a plan. So I want to give you the opportunity. Not only do I want to give it to you, I want to challenge you. God put it out there. He said, test me in this. I want to encourage you to test him in this. If you'd be willing to to say today between you and God, I, God, I am good. And look, this is not about, look, if you're not a mendum person, the principle still exists. Give your money elsewhere. This is not about mendum trying to get your money. Give your money elsewhere. But you can still say today, I want to become the kind of person that has a plan, that understands that God is a priority. And I'm going to move to following the percentage that the scripture has laid out very clearly as I walk towards Christ. When you walk out, you're going to see a couple of my white buckets sitting out there. You could throw those cards in. That'll be a little promise between you and God. Uh, maybe it'll help control you this Christmas season, uh, and maybe it'll help start your 2018 financially in the right direction. Let's stand up and close in worship.